This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. North Korea, officially known as the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or DPRK, is an East Asian country located on the northern end of the Korean Peninsula. To the north of North Korea, there is China and Russia, and to the south, there is South Korea. Size-wise, it is around 46,000 square miles, and population-wise, around 25 million. The capital city of North Korea is Pyongyang, and their official language is Korean. While you would think it's the same as South Korea, there seems to be lots of differences since the two nations have different ideas towards their language and have developed differently over the years. It's similar to how I see Taiwan Chinese and China Chinese. The writing and the accent and the word usage can all be sort of different, but still, you can communicate. North and South Korea are considered different countries, and the two countries are divided by the Korean demilitarized zone. This barrier runs across the peninsula, cutting the Korean peninsula in half. It is about 250 kilometers long and 4 kilometers wide. That's some major border control right there. I've given a brief introduction to South Korea in episode 7, but I think this episode deserves a better explanation especially when it comes to differentiating the two Koreas and their history. But let's start from the very beginning. The history of Korea, meaning both North and South, can be traced back to the Lower Paleolithic Age, about half a million years ago. They moved from the Stone Age to Bronze and then to Iron and such. Eventually, civilization and kingdoms formed, and one of the most notable kingdoms would be the Three Kingdoms of Korea. During these ancient times, the Korean peninsula was constantly either trading or getting attacked by the Chinese, mostly due to their geographical conditions, as they are connected by land. The three kingdoms not only had to be wary of China, but also of each other. We all know that power doesn't come easy, and it's even more difficult for major powers to coexist on one piece of land. The kingdom of Sila prevailed and took control of everything. But this did not last for a long time. After the Three Kingdoms came the later Three Kingdoms, which was later unified by the Goryeo Dynasty around 936 CE. The nation was unified, new working systems were introduced to everyday life, laws were established, and Buddhism strongly impacted society and culture. The Goryeo Dynasty was overthrown in the late 1300s, and the Joseon dynasty was set up. The most notable event from this era would be the invention of the Korean alphabet, which is called Hangul. This dynasty was peaceful for quite a while until the Japanese was all over them around the late 1500s and early 1600s. 
the Joseon dynasty was getting tired of foreign powers and was feeling rather protective. So they began to isolate themselves, but all the while, foreign powers continued to harass them. You know what I always say. No Asian history is complete without some Western country trying to take over or force something onto them. Joseon Dynasty signed many unequal treaties with European powers, and after going through a quick era of modernization, the new empire, the Korean Empire, was annexed by the Japanese. Obviously, Japan tends to do that. So the Korean Empire was under Japanese rule from 1910 till the end of World War II. Of course, most people weren't happy with this because the Japanese were there for their own interest. And when they don't care much for the people they're already oppressing, resistance groups will form. A liberation army was formed, and one of the leaders was none other than Kim Il-sung himself. And in case you don't know who that is, well, he's the first leader of North Korea. The current North Korean leader's grandpa. As we probably know, World War II was a mess and everybody was everywhere, stationed here and there. So when the war was finally over, two Americans divided the Korean peninsula into North and South along the 38th parallel. The North was taken by the Soviets and the South was taken by the Americans. In the Wikipedia article, it states that the Americans divided it this way on purpose so the capital city, Seoul, would be under U.S. control. And in parentheses, it also states that no experts on Korea were consulted. I thought that was pretty funny. Anyway, then came the Cold War and a unified Korea was pretty much impossible at this point. North Korea invaded South Korea in 1950, which then started the Korean War. The American troops in the South then fought back against the North. Basically, it was North Korea and China versus South Korea and the U.S. The war ended in 1953, and the two Koreas went back to the way life was before the invasion. A lot more has happened between the two Koreas since 1953, as in several assassination attempts, kidnappings, etc. Talk of a peaceful reunification was brought up in the early 1970s, but South Korea later on insisted that they prefer their space and would prefer to be excluded from this narrative. North Korea was growing and flourishing at one point, even at a faster rate than South Korea, but all that came to an end when the Soviet Union went away. Remember, the Soviets were still heavily involved in North Korea prior to 1991, and after that, the North turned to China for help. Kim Il-sung was the very first leader of North Korea, beginning from 1948 till he died of a heart attack in 1994. His son took over a few years after his death and began negotiating with the U.S. on nuclear weapons development and due to the Sunshine Policy, they also were on speaking terms with South Korea. Kim Jong-il himself died in 2011, and one of his sons, Kim Jong-un, then took over and is currently the leader of North Korea. North Korea is a mysterious place, probably, to most of us. They are an atheist state. They don't celebrate Christmas or Valentine's Day. They have their own exclusive Pyongyang time zone. They were named as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. They still have public executions, sometimes for rather minor crimes. Media and ads are obviously heavily censored, 
with very limited things to watch. I also heard that wearing jeans is illegal, amongst a million other things. Also, the leaders of North Korea are pretty much deified. I will stop here, and you should really go check out some of the things the internet has to offer. And always keep an open mind. As for today's case, it's a pretty high-profile case from North Korea. I could probably go on and on about how interesting, fascinating, and strange that country is, but that's not why you're here. Let's talk crime. Let's talk murder. This is the case of the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, also known as Kim Jong-il's oldest son, and Kim Jong-un's half-brother. His identity was already pretty high-profile, but the way and where he died made it even more publicized. Let's begin. In a country like North Korea, it's probably not really accepted for a country's leader to have relationships with an actress. You know, someone not from a prominent family or with any political power or background. Kim Jong-il knew that, and how much his father, Kim Il-sung, would disapprove of this. So his relationship with an actress was a secret affair. Oh, and let's not forget the fact that he was already married to his first wife at the time of this secret affair, and his secret lover was a divorced woman. So I guess it was a secret relationship for many, many reasons. The secret couple had a baby who also happened to be Kim Jong-il's firstborn, and he was named King Jong-nam. I will refer to him as Kim from now on as he is the focus of today's case, and everyone else I will refer to them by their full name. Kim was born on May 10, 1971, in the capital city Pyongyang. He was more or less considered an illegitimate child, therefore he was unable to grow up with his actual parents. He lived most of his early years with his mother's sister, and he also spent time with his grandmother in Moscow. He was homeschooled for a while when he was still living in North Korea, but eventually began attending international schools outside of North Korea, both in Moscow and in Geneva. I guess you could say he had a rather different childhood from most people in North Korea. He had a great relationship with his older cousin, and although he was what you would call an illegitimate child, he received only the best clothes, the best toys, and the best care. He was rumored to have been driving a Mercedes-Benz at the age of 15. He was, after all, the grandson of North Korea's leader. Maybe due to his different upbringing, Kim was labeled as a sensitive and artistic child. Despite being the son of a mistress, he was still considered the eventual heir after his father. But according to the aunt who helped raise him, Kim never really had a strong desire for that kind of life. He was way more interested in writing and films, you know, not ruling a country. Kim eventually moved back to North Korea more permanently, attending university at the most prestigious North Korean university, Kim Il-sung University. I know, shocking name for university, but hey, if America gets to have George Washington University, North Korea can do that too. After he finished his studies, he joined the North Korean Ministry of Public Security and also led the Computer Committee, basically handling everything IT-related. Up until this point, it was pretty apparent that things were going well for Kim. 
His grandfather had passed away, and his father was now the leader of North Korea. And after his father, he would be the logical heir. But things don't always work out the way they're supposed to. And although it's just a rumor, the following incident seemed to have made North Korea lose face, which is also the start of Kim Jong-nam's downfall. Before we get into the incident, a little background information. Kim was married to his first wife-slash-partner, Shin Jong-hee, by the year 2001, and also had a son. But his son's mother was not her. The child's mother was actually said to have been Kim Jong-nam's mistress. I suppose in this case, the term concubine works better since it wasn't a secret that he had another partner. Kim was rumored to have fathered six children, but the one that would come up in future references and interviews would be this son, Kim Han-sol. Anyway, let's go back to Kim. His father, Kim Jong-il, had remarried to another woman who is now the stepmother and also the birth mother of Kim Jong-nam's step-siblings, including Kim Jong-un. His stepmother wasn't a fan of him, maybe because they weren't blood relatives, so he left North Korea and lived all over Europe for a while. As for the losing face incident, here's what happened. North Korean passports aren't exactly the friendliest passports in the world. To get to many places in the world, North Koreans require visas and have to risk being denied. But that doesn't stop people from traveling, of course. In 2001, Kim took his wife, his son, and some say his mistress, to Tokyo, Japan. The problem is that they tried entering the country with Dominican Republic passports, but with Chinese aliases. Yes, they were obviously fake passports. Fun fact, the Chinese alias on Kim's passport was Pangxiong, which literally means fat bear in Chinese. You see, a Dominican Republic passport does not require a visa when entering Japan, and they can stay for a maximum of 90 days. But sucks for them. They were caught using fakes and were deported to China. They were trying to get to one of the happiest places on earth, but it actually went the complete opposite way. Awkward. So, soon after this failed Disneyland trip, it was rumored that Kim Jong-il was extremely embarrassed for his son's actions and thus revoked a lot of power that his son had. But according to Kim, he was half-banished because he no longer agreed with the North Korean regime. He was interested in change and reform, and clearly that did not sit well with the family. Remember, Kim Jong-nam spent a lot of time living overseas and practically grew up outside of North Korea. So it really shouldn't be that surprising if he had some more liberal ideas going on. Or maybe it was a mixture of both. His dad got mad at him for embarrassing the country, and he was also like, eh, this ain't for me. Either way, he eventually left North Korea with his family members and settled in Macau around the year 2003. I think in some way he was considered the black sheep of the family. Macau, if you recall, is famous for its casino business. Kim Jong-nam spent his days gambling, organizing business deals, eating, and drinking, living the good, rich kid life. This is probably the kind of freedom he wouldn't be able to get back in North Korea. I guess now that his father put all his hope on his youngest son, Kim Jong-un, it was easier to live a carefree life and not worry about running a country. 
Some of us were born to be leaders, and some of us were born to have fun, I guess. The exact timeline and events for the next decade would be rather difficult to confirm, mostly because Kim tried to live under the radar, and since he was a black sheep, the Kim family was less likely to discuss or focus on him. After all, they had a country to run, and they were trying to work on the new heir, as in Kim Jong-un. And now, and how much of a black sheep was he? He narrowly avoided being assassinated in the year 2006 in the Budapest airport. That's how much. And it wouldn't be the first time somebody tried to assassinate him. It's also interesting to note that Kim Jong-nam was the first Kim family member to speak freely to the media. If he was stopped in Macau or anywhere overseas, he would gladly stop and answer questions, which is something the Kim family does not encourage. During one of these impromptu interviews, Kim stated that he had quote-unquote no interest in taking over North Korea, and everything was up to his dad anyway. He also said that his half-brother was too young to know how to run a country, and the regime will likely fail under his rule. Yikes. There were also many rumors regarding where Kim was living, where he was planning to go, all that. Kim sort of dismissed all these rumors because that's pretty much what's best for him. Not a good time to stick out. The second leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-il, passed away in 2011, and his youngest son, who was 28 at the time, who was also the current leader, took over on December 24, 2011. Although it didn't seem to matter much to Kim Jong-nam, he still expected the new leader to fail because, quote, without reforms, North Korea will collapse, and when such changes take place, the regime will collapse, end quote. I'm going to assume many of us agree with this statement, but it doesn't matter what we think. Kim Jong-un did not grow up with his half-brother. They were not close, mostly because they had different mothers, and in a sense, they were competing for the throne. And because they weren't close, there were rumors that the new leader wanted his half-brother dead. The plot thickens. The second assassination attempt happened in the year 2012. Kim Jong-nam reportedly began to get ultra-suspicious and moved around or traveled around constantly, probably doing his best to avoid staying put. As for the third attempt, he was not so lucky. In February of 2017, Kim Jong-nam traveled to Malaysia for a week-long vacation. On his way out of Malaysia February 13th, at the departure hall of Kuala Lumpur International Airport, two women came up behind him and covered his face with a piece of cloth. One was said to have gotten hold of him while the other covered his face, and some say both dabbed his face with a piece of white cloth. The whole process took only about two seconds, and once the two seconds passed, the two women just casually walked off in different directions, as if nothing happened. There are very grainy videos of this on YouTube, so you could check it out if you're interested. Kim would be very confused, frustrated, and feeling a bit off. His actions were all caught on camera. First, he would be seen walking off to airport security, presumably to tell them what had just happened, and asking for assistance. In the next footage, Kim would be seen walking with airport security and eventually arriving at the airport medical center. Kim was reportedly sweating profusely, in pain, and eventually fell unconscious. 
An ambulance was called, but it was said that he died before he could even make it to the hospital. What happened? What sort of sorcery was on that piece of cloth that rendered a man dead in less than an hour? Before we get to the investigation, I would like to discuss first what happened to Kim. It was pretty clear at this point that he had been poisoned, but they had to find out the internal damage and, most importantly, what had killed him. An autopsy was performed on February 15th, two days after his death. The autopsy was performed by Muhammad Shah Mahmood, and he concluded that the lungs, brain, liver, and spleen all had signs of being poisoned. Toxicology, on the other hand, took a bit longer, and about 10 days later, reports stated that Kim Jong-nam had been exposed to nerve agent VX, where the VX stands for Venomous Agent X. So what does this Agent VX actually do? According to Wikipedia, and thank you really because there is no way I understand anything chemical related, VX is pretty much a chemical weapon that is banned all over the world by the Chemical Weapons Convention and has been proven to be extremely deadly. Just a tiny little drop can kill, and it is even more potent than sarin, which was used in the Tokyo subway attack in 1995. After being exposed to VX, the nervous and muscular signaling system will be damaged, which will cause paralysis to the muscles, meaning you cannot swallow, you cannot breathe, you cannot control your body, and eventually you die from asphyxiation. Not a pleasant way to go. The autopsy was officially finished on March 10th, confirming the cause of death and identity of the victim via Kim Jong-nam's son. His body was embalmed while they waited for it to be collected by his family members. But sadly enough, his family members were like, No, Malaysia, you guys deal with it. His body was eventually flown to North Korea at the end of March. The North Korean embassy did request for the body to be released as soon as it was announced that he had died back in February. But that did not happen. There was an autopsy and an investigation. The North Korean embassy took the opportunity to blame Malaysia for the assassination. They accused the Malaysian government of either covering up stuff or for working with enemies of North Korea. Despite Malaysia protesting and swearing up and down that they are completely objective, North Korea continued to deflect and blame Malaysia, and also South Korea, of course, for, quote, fabricating evidence, and for putting the blame on North Korea. A lot of political and diplomatic issues and disputes went down because of Kim's death. Malaysia went ahead and cancelled the North Koreans' free visa entry to Malaysia, and soon after, the North Korean ambassador in Malaysia was ordered to leave Malaysia within 48 hours. North Korea saw this and also made the Malaysian ambassador leave. Then the North Koreans took it a step further by locking down all the Malaysians living in North Korea as in they were not allowed to leave. Malaysia saw this and was like, okay, fine, me too then. All this drama happened during the investigation and autopsy of Kim, so basically the entire month of March. Now let's head back to the investigation. The two women were clearly caught on camera footage, so it wasn't that difficult to find and arrest them. 28-year-old Duan Ti Hong was from Vietnam, arrested the day after the attack, and two days later, 25-year-old Siti 
Aisyah from Indonesia was also arrested in connection of the murder. There were so many questions regarding this duo, and not just them. It was also said that they were working with four other men from North Korea who gave them instructions and gave them the weapons, as in the chemicals. Who were they? And why were they working together? What is the motive? Let's start with their stories. Both Duan and Siti were minding their own business when they were recruited in late 2016 and early 2017. The two women were approached by North Koreans who told the two that they were an entertainment and talent scout from Japan and China. Not sure what was said to the two, but the point is that they believed them and went along with their plans. So what kind of entertainment exactly? Basically, performing pranks on unsuspecting people. I don't know. I think that's lame. Prior to this attack on Kim Jong-nam, the pair had already performed these so-called pranks on many other people in different countries and cities. They were paid from 100 to 200 US dollars per prank, and possibly no one was ever harmed during the pranks, so they assumed it was legit work? If this backstory is true, then the two must have been groomed and trained in a manner of speaking, getting ready for the real target without them knowing. This kind of explains how the two women walked away so nonchalantly after attacking Kim Jong-nam, because if you look at the footage, they seem so calm and collected. Again, if the story was true or is true, these two were clearly the scapegoats for the entire plan. So... Who was actually behind the attack, though? According to investigations, aside from the four North Korean men who were believed to be behind the attack, three other men were considered to be associated with the attack as well. A North Korean man by the name of Lee Ji-woo was believed to be in charge of recruiting the two women. Kim Uk-il was working for Air Koryo, the main North Korean airline. Hyun Kwang Song was an employee in the North Korean embassy in Malaysia. As soon as the investigations began, the three men had fled to the embassy for refuge, so they couldn't be arrested. As for the four men I mentioned earlier, they were actually spotted on the security camera footage on the day of the attack, and all four were seen leaving as soon as the attack was carried out. By the time the police realized this, though, all four men had already returned to North Korea, flying from Kuala Lumpur to Jakarta, then to Dubai, then to Vladivostok, and finally back to North Korea. Clearly, they were trying to take the long, suspicious, but possibly safer way out of the country. The two women were eventually charged with murder, and in Malaysia, that means the death penalty. Just FYI, a lot of crimes can lead to death in Malaysia, including drug trafficking, treason, murder, and any form of terrorism. Their murder trial began on October 2017 in the Malaysian High Court, and both women pleaded not guilty. The defense lawyers claimed that the two women were not aware that this was a political assassination and honestly believed it was a prank. Neither one received payment for their last prank, and they weren't even aware that they were handling toxic chemicals. If anything, it would have killed them as well. The defense lawyers also blamed the Malaysian government for not reacting in a timely manner and for not doing a thorough enough investigation on the clothing material and or exploring other possibilities. 
For example, six different types of drugs were found inside Kim's system that included treatment for diabetes, hypertension, etc. Was it possible that the combination of these drugs and the nerve agent caused such a quick death? It was also debated how long it took Kim Jong-nam to die. In the end, it was really difficult to reach a definite conclusion because a lot of evidence was gone and honestly, nobody was that familiar with the nerve agent. The first part of the trial ended last year but started again this March, as in 2019. CT's charges were dropped and she was released. She returned home soon after. Duan, the other woman, was not so lucky. Duan's lawyers called out this unfair treatment, but to their delight, Duan would also be released just two months later, in May of 2019. Both women had been in prison for about two years, both had been charged for causing injury, but not murder. To be honest, everyone was surprised as to why the charges were dropped so suddenly, but the answer is probably something political behind the scenes. As for the four North Koreans that left Malaysia immediately after the attack, they have actually been charged for the murder of Kim Jong-nam, and Interpol seems to be looking for them. They still hope that they will be found and can face trial in Malaysia. Unlikely, but okay. The whole trial was very long and very tedious, and it was more about defending the two women than finding out exactly what happened. But then again, these two kind of go hand in hand, so... Most of the world believed that Kim Jong-nam was killed on Kim Jong-un's orders. They were half-brothers, but they were not close. Several intelligence agencies confirmed that it was a hit ordered by the current North Korean leader. But North Korea continues to deny this. Was Kim Jong-nam seen as a threat? Or as an embarrassment? Or maybe he was making North Korea look bad with all his talk of reform and progress. Or maybe, as some rumors stated, Kim Jong-nam was leaking confidential intel to the CIA and was too close to China for North Korea's liking. If it was a hit carried out by Kim Jong-un, it really does show how far he would go to protect his own name and what he would do to get rid of people standing in his way. In case you didn't know, Kim Jong-un agreed to have his own uncle executed in 2013. Yup, family. In this case though, not only did he order a hit, he also used a chemical weapon in another country where tons of people could have also been exposed to it. That's ballsy, and clearly, if what I just speculated is true, North Korea is definitely trying to prove something to the world, but at the same time, they also show how little regard they have for others. There are many interesting tidbits and questions from this case, aside from the obvious who and whys. One thing that is strange and interesting is that when Kim Jong-nam died, he was found with 12 bottles of atropine on him. Atropine is what you would call the antidote to nerve agent VX. If he had it on him and he didn't die immediately, why wouldn't he take it? Kim Jong-nam had been cautious because he was aware that someone was trying to kill him. How or why he would even think of carrying atropine is a big mystery. As for Kim's son, Kim Han-sol, he is said to be living in a secure location but also on the down low. 
Kim Hansol grew up overseas, and although he has direct ties to the North Korean leader, he is actually rather outspoken when it comes to North Korea's way of life. He very much disagrees with the current dictatorship and hopes that North Korea will be free one day. If Kim Jong-un felt threatened by his half-brother, then I would imagine he would probably feel threatened by his own nephew as well. I do hope he doesn't meet the same fate as his own father, as he does seem like a nice young man. Kim Hansol was interviewed by former Swedish People's Party MP Elizabeth Wren in 2012, and I think it's pretty interesting to see how un-North Korean he is. He's more Korean boy band BTS style, less Kim Jong-un style, if you know what I mean. So there you have it, the death of a man who was once about to take over North Korea, one of the strangest places on earth. I would say most of us would believe that Kim Jong-un is the likely suspect behind his murder, despite his continual denial. Fact is that he's proven to be capable of making decisions that benefit him and only him, so would it really be shocking to believe this? Sure, it could have been some other bizarre reason or coincidence, or somebody trying to pin it on North Korea. But in the meantime, I'm probably going to stick with what I know as facts. I would love to travel to North Korea one day and see that place for myself, but I don't know if I would be welcome there after I hit publish on this episode. Maybe I'll wait a few more years after this episode blows over. Thanks again for tuning in. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.